Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Alan C. Carlson, who wrote the book, The Natural Family, a Manifesto, among many other books. If you've enjoyed the works of C.R. Wiley in the past, you can know that Alan C. Carlson was a major influence on Chris. We talked about his Reagan appointment and what he accomplished during that administration, stories about the UN and what he does there, and about his book, The Natural Family. Without further ado, meet Alan C. Carlson. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Alan C. Carlson, former Hillsdale professor of history. Alan, thank you so much for your time. Can you tell us a little bit about where you are now? Uh, I live uh, near Rockford, Illinois. Uh, I work for an organization that uh, is now called the International Organization for the Family. It's a outgrowth of the Howard Center for Family, Religion, and Society, which I founded about 25 years ago. IOF, its principal projects are, are, are three, actually. The first one is we uh, maintain and have, for 25 years, a presence at the United Nations as an official observer and an NGO or non-governmental organization. As such, we monitor and seek to uh, support good things that happen there, but mostly to oppose the bad things that happen <laughs> at the United Nations, which uh, unfortunately is uh, kind of a full-time job these days. Uh, the second project is we uh, produce a, a, a quarterly journal called uh, The Natural Family, an international journal of research policy. It's, uh, it sounds a little lofty, but it's meant for anybody uh, interested in family issues uh, at the national and international level. Uh, I edit that, and we, uh, again, follow family questions around the globe uh, and, uh, and seek, to, uh, seek to make a difference. Our third project, and the one we're probably best known for these days, is called the World Congress of Families. The first one was held uh, in Prague, the Czech Republic, back in 1997. There have been uh, 14 others since then of big size and maybe another 30 or 40 uh, regional conferences. Uh, our purpose is to promote, uh, defend, uh, explain, and uh, support the natural family around the globe. Natural family uh, it's what people generally think of when you say the word traditional family, but it's a, it's a man married to a woman, uh, the presumption for life, uh, with a first focus on procreating, raising children, sharing resources and support, and maintaining linkages to one's extended family and to ancestors and to posterity. That's the natural family. Uh, you, you think that's, well, that's, that's obvious, right? Well, I'm afraid <laughs> these days it's not. Uh, it's not obvious anymore, and so we have to uh, we have to be an advocate these days. And all doing that, I'm a writer. Uh, I've published fifteen uh, book book length studies, all dealing one way or another with family questions. And you know, many uh, many hundreds of articles. Uh, I, as you mentioned, have been a teacher at Hillsdale College, where I had a great time. Uh, I've taught at a few other schools as well, and uh, that's pretty much what I'm up to. Can I ask how? So where did you come from? How, how did you get into how did you get into all this? I was born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa, in a nice, good, normal, healthy family. Uh, I never, when the '60s came along, I was a little, well, not too sure about what was happening in Vietnam. I otherwise, <laughs> was pretty pretty happy with the country. I thought it was going along pretty well. Then the '60s hit, 
and uh, had to reconfigure things. I wound up going to, I did my time in the Army. I had to, uh, I went to graduate school, then in history, and became interested in family policy, how governments have attempted to influence family life and population trends uh, through through policy making, and spoke, focused specifically on Sweden, the uh, home of my ancestors, back in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, that led to a, a lifelong interest, almost obsession in family questions. Part was, I guess, part time as a writer, as an editor, as a teacher, as a think tank executive, and a conference organizer. So that's how I got into it, and uh, have stuck with it ever since. Was uh, in terms of family policy and, and finding ways that government has influenced the family. Was that just one big depressing study? <laughs> Actually, no. Uh, okay. There have been good things that have happened over time. I guess the, depress, the depressing thing is that when governments finally get it right, oh, about 15 years later, they screw it up again. <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, there are things that government has done well, uh, and sometimes they're a little bit surprising. I, one thing that surprises most of my conservative friends is that, amazingly, back in the 1930s, the uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt administration did some things right. They got it right. In terms of supporting the family, they supported motherhood. Uh, they they favored uh, what uh, we we could call a, uh, a family wage. That was make sure fathers were earning enough money to support their mother as a full time mother at home, if that's what she wanted to do, uh, and to support children. So again, the number of things done in the 1930s were done well. In the 19 late 1940s, uh, the Republican Party became a principal advocate for a uh, a pro family tax policy, which the United States again did very well from the 1940s till about 1970, and then messed it up again. <laughs> so no, there's good things okay. that have happened, okay. and uh, some of the books I've written have been trying to sort out the bad from the good. So you mentioned you were a writer. I got my hands on the book, The Natural Family, A Manifesto. So you have the, uh, I assume just in the, in the putting together of this, the manifesto has been used in other places and then you wrote to a company. Is that correct? Correct. There's a short version, the manifesto itself, which is about 25 pages. And then the, the book you talk about was sort of starts with that, but then expounds on it for another 200 pages or so. So what I, I really enjoyed, the first two chapters, you sort of contrast two ideas of the family. The first chapter being the school of despotism and the second, the bulwark of liberty. In the first chapter, you kind of go through several philosophical thinkers, sort of history of ideas, characters that have sort of sewered the family to some degree, not big fans of the family. And I got this feeling as I returned to your book recently, you would think that the family had been in charge of like, you know, mass murders and global starvation with the way that the family is reviled. It, it sort of is shocking at times. Is, do, you, do you see that as well? Oh, yes. It's uh, the, uh, in, in our day in particular, the, I will call it the natural family or what others prefer, the traditional family is being blamed for just about everything that's gone wrong, which is a complete lie. Uh, when families are strong, that is when they are built, built on natural marriage, traditional marriage, when they're focused on rearing children, when they celebrate uh, men and women as men and women, when they um, are tied to uh, religious faith and religious commitment, things go really quite well. Everyone, 
by and large, is healthier, wealthier, and happier. Whenever we deviate from the natural family model, things go bad. Okay, you know, it's still possible to grow up in a, I'll call a poor family or no family at all, uh, and still turn out good. But it's also it's almost always because somebody in a, a normal family has taken that child uh, under their wing. Uh, I shouldn't say normal. In a natural family, has taken a child in their wing. So no, but that's the, uh, the, the family as a school of despotism has been what the political left, not only including communists, but also uh, uh, what we'll call philosophical uh, individualistic liberalism have, have said. The family is a problem that has to be weakened or even eliminated uh, so that human beings can be truly free. The biggest lie around. <laughs> it seems like uh, in terms of the world being sinful as it is, just on neutral, you know, letting gravity take us into the next century, the family seems like a particular place to nitpick or take apart. You mentioned Hobbes and Locke, John Stuart Mill, Rousseau, and then I recently had a conversation with a man by the name E. Michael Jones about uh, Mary Shelley's parents, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft and Godwin, and just their, their, uh, just hatred for the family as well, or marriage, or it just seems like there's something about this unit that folks want to pick apart. What do you think it is about this little family unit? <laughs> it, it just seems like well, the strangest of all things to, to, to go at, but it's yeah. always one, it's always a target. Well, it's easy to explain if one is a Christian. Uh, Satan attacks the family relentlessly, always has and always will. Let's, let's put him aside for the time and, uh, and talk about uh, philosophers. Uh, maybe you mentioned Hobbes and Locke, the originators of the liberal tradition. Uh, and the liberal tradition is the tradition that celebrates and elevates the individual, ultimately to the, uh, to the elimination of every form of human attachment that has any natural or historical or roots or, or, or connections, and, and the family being most of all. The ultimate goal of the of liberal individualism is uh, to be a self-owner, as it's been sometimes called, a self-definer. You define your own human nature. You define your own ethical code, and you go out and act on it. That's uh, what liberalism has led to. And in fact, uh, contemporary ideas uh, behind gender, that is, you can craft your own gender. Contemporary ideas around sexuality, you create your own uh, sexual code. This is liberalism gone to its final point. And it started, it began with uh, arguments being made by Hobbes and, and Locke centuries ago. I mean, I think they would both be appalled by where, where it wound up. <laughs> <laughs> they pushed the, uh, they started the rock rolling down the hill. Yeah. And the uh, uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, being a good example, and you and you talked about uh, the uh, other intellectuals of the early 19th century in Europe, who again were trying to find an alternative, desperately, to family bonds in the name of freedom. It is an interesting thought experiment to see if. Do you think Hobbes would enjoy Rousseau? Rousseau's company. <laughs> I, I actually I don't think so. I don't because, either. <laughs> uh, I don't. Th I, I, I don't think so. And you know, there are elements of both that are you know were, are are actually pretty good. There were some elements of Rousseau, for example, that uh, if you just take it in isolation, he got some things right. He was a great advocate, for example, of 
of maternal breastfeeding. On the other <laughs> hand, uh, he, uh, he had a bunch of children of his own, none in marriage, all of whom were placed in foundling homes by himself directly sometimes. So he was a remarkably creepy person, but yep. he got some things right. One thing that I enjoyed about your book as well was sort of chasing the footnotes. You mentioned two in the first chapter that I bought on the spot. One was Jan Lewis's The Pursuit of Happiness. Yes. And then I forget the authors, I want to say Barry, but The Myth of Individualism. Oh, Barry Shane. Barry Shane. Shane. Yes. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about those two and how they related to your thesis? Well, they're they're terrific books. Uh, Jan Lewis's book is what is looking at the phrase, what is, what is this strange phrase that we find in our founding documents, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, specifically in the, in the uh, Declaration of Independence. John Locke's phrase had been life, liberty, and property. Uh, those were the essentials, basic human rights. But it was changed to the pursuit of happiness. What on earth did that mean? Well, the modern version is uh, pursuit of pleasure, uh, particularly of sexual pleasure any way and all ways that you might want. But back then, what did it mean? And she takes a good look at, uh, and I think makes the point that particularly looking at Jefferson's Virginia, Thomas Jefferson and others like him who were the founders of, of the United States, what they meant by by pursuit of happiness was familial happiness, what might be called flourishing within a family. That is where you would find happiness if you were going to find it anywhere. And I, that's the point of her book. The other book by Barry Shane, he's a political philosopher at uh, Colgate University. And he, he just takes issue with the idea that the United States was uh, always founded as a individualistic country, that all, all Americans were sort of proto-capitalists and proto-individualists and uh, fought nothing of, uh, of, uh, of the family or fought very little of it. He just he shows, I think, quite thoroughly that it was a complete lie. Uh, what he does show, I think, uh, is he looks at political sermons back in the late 18th century. It was not just common, but routine that pastors, uh, particularly in this, we're talking mainly of Protestant churches now, the pastors would uh, give s- sermons focused on politics and po- focused on political theory at certain times of the year. This was something they did. and. He shows quite, I think, convincingly that the political theory they were fo- focusing on had nothing to do with liberalism. It had much to do with familism, with the uh, grounding of the political order in the family, in the in the grounding of the political order in communal connections. The United States was born as a communal nation, uh, family, religious communities, local communities, extended families. These were the most important things. Uh, the individualistic side, it was there. But say in 1776, you almost impossible to find it in the United States. It was kind of floating around in Europe a little bit, but in the U.S., almost not at all. So those are the, those are, I think, two great books. Yeah, I, they help me kind of think things through. They so in terms of those two, I think I've heard you say that America was sort of founded as a pre-modern place. Is that correct? Yeah, I probably would modify that and say a pre-liberal place. Pre-liberal. Uh, okay. Can you tell us about uh, that distinction or what well, you... Well, uh, pre-modern, some, the term modern, of course, is, is, is very loose. <laughs> it can mean many different things. Very loaded. Pre-liberal, there's a distinct liberal tradition. And it, and I think the... And we, we've talked a little bit about it. So it began with Hobbes and yep. began with Locke. It was refined by figures such as 
uh, is John Stuart Mill and, and, right. and moving into the 20th century as well. That you can, it, 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 you can define what that is and you can show where it came from and where it's going. The term modern, I use it all the time myself, but it, it, it's, it, it's, it's elusive what it really means. So, especially now, I know you studied the Swiss policy, but, you know, being around the UN, has it given you time to uh, sort of expand those studies in and around the world? Essentially, was, was America and its founding uh, unique? on the world stage? In some ways it was. In other ways, it was a, re, a reaffirmation of some very fundamental things that had been, were starting to fall apart in Europe. I, don't know if, I think I heard you mention the Swiss. Uh, actually, the Swiss are, are, were a remarkable people, really, up to about 40 years ago. Uh, again, uh, radical decentralists, uh, until about 40 or 50 years ago, you'd be hard-pressed to identify who was the president of the Swiss Federation. They were almost <laughs> unknown because everything was local. Strongly familistic, strongly traditional, strongly Christian, and good, honorable Republicans who practiced uh, what we'll call it kind of an interesting form of democracy. One of the, uh, one of the uh, odd things about the Swiss was that it wasn't until 1970 that that women were allowed to vote. <laughs> That's pretty recent. <laughs> very, and uh, very recent. they still practice what was called the family vote, that uh, a family had a vote exercised by the father, his head of household, but very traditional, kind of a very Christian way of doing things. Uh, but, you know, throughout the world right now, you, you will find there are nations that are still, by coming out of their past, very strongly family-oriented. It's particularly true in Africa. And uh, one of the things that have been, have been going on in our World Congress of Families project, one of our constant themes is that uh, we'll call it left-wing Europeans, ranging from, Europe, from um, uh, individualistic liberals to uh, kind of tyrannical socialists or social democrats, trying to employ, impose, we'll call it now, modern sexual values on the Africans. Abandon family ties, abandon marriage, embrace the LGBT agenda, embrace abortion, embrace this, embrace that. And in fact, imposing it on the Africans. We've been trying to help, and with some success, help some African countries uh, resist that, call it the new imperialism. And to be frank, uh, the, uh, the, the Clinton administration was involved in that as well, not quite as badly as some of the European countries. We're also fine today that there are, again, something which our, I think our World Congress of Families has helped at least encouraged and supported, uh, some of the former communist countries, uh, which threw off communism about 1990, 91, 92, tried Western liberalism for a while and didn't like it and, and saw that it was had many disruptive qualities on relative to their societies and their economies even, uh, have, have, have embraced a strong pro-family approach. Uh, I think the most prominent example is today is Hungary uh, under the Fidesz party uh, uh, led by uh, Viktor Orban, the prime minister, have reoriented the whole of the country to support and encourage marriage and larger families. Wow. Uh, they want to have more children and have placed the family at the center of the whole national project. Poland, something similar is going on right now. Slovakia, and even in Russia, something similar happened about uh, seven or eight years ago. So uh, again, there are pro-family countries there. And at the UN level, this is kind of hard for many West, for many American Christians to understand. When you actually go to get votes at the United Nations for pro-life, 
anti-abortion policies and for pro-family policies, anti-modern sexual revolution policies, uh, the Muslims are pretty reliable votes. Um, (laughs) The Organization of Islamic Conference has been a common friend of pro-family and pro-life activity at the United Nations. Again, hard for American Christians sometimes to accept, but just, in fact, a truth. Credit where credit's due. We recently spoke with um, George Gilder, who, among other things, has a very interesting past and uh, fascinating influence with the Reagan uh, administration. I saw that you had a Reagan appointment. Can you tell us about that? Sure. But first of all, I'll say George Gilder is an old friend. I've been oh, dealing very, with him for a long time. Yeah, very good. Awesome. We just fl- uh, we just had him out. So. Oh, good. Uh, no, he's uh, he, brought, he wrote a couple of important books on family questions back in the 70s, which I found very helpful. Yeah, Reagan administration. In 1988, this was near the end of Reagan's term, the U.S. Congress passed a, a, a law creating the National Commission on Children. And it was this freestanding commission with 36 commissioners. 12 would be appointed by the president, 12 would be appointed by the Speaker of the House, and 12 would be appointed by the President of the Senate. Now, at the time, both the House and the Senate, the federal level, were controlled by the Democrats, even though the president was obviously a Ronald Reagan Republican. So anyway, commission was created. I was one of 12 appointees by President Reagan. The other 24 were appointees from uh, by the Democrats. It was an amazing uh, group. In many ways, I say the Democrats had their first team there. They had uh, Bill Clinton was a appointee. He was governor of uh, of Arkansas at the time, but Bill Clinton was on the commission. Uh, wow. Marion Wright Edelman, Children's Defense Fund, who was Hillary Clinton's mentor, was a member. Uh, John D. Rockefeller the Fourth, J. Rockefeller, senator from West Virginia, was appointed and served uh, actually. By kind of pre, it was kind of all worked out in advance. He became the chairman of the commission. Anyway, commission operated from 88 to 93, although it, its final report, its major report came out in 1991. Against all the odds, the commission's report was actually quite good. I could spend hours or even days talking about how that happened, but let's just say things fell in place. And uh, we conservatives, among the Republican appointees, about oh, half were there for political payoff reasons. And the other half actually had an agenda and we were actually able to do a pretty good job of selling it. And Jay Rockefeller as chairman was uh, actually was fair. When we convinced people and got enough votes on the commission, he made sure he, the things went through. So what were, what were the commission's recommendations? Well, the primary one was to, uh, actually the major thing we did was we turned the commission around. Democrats wanted uh, a bunch of uh, but by intent was uh, a bunch of new programs to be funded and treating children as sort of freestanding individuals with a bunch of new federal programs that would do things for them. What we managed to do and got the commission to sign off was to say that the only way to improve the status of children is to improve the uh, power and uh, ability of parents to be parents and to function as autonomous in families. And our one of our, for example, our our, our principal recommendation was to create the new child tax credit, not child care tax credit, but the child tax credit. Uh, if you have children right now, you can, it's worth a couple thousand dollars a year in taxes that you save at the end. That didn't exist. So wow. that came in as, as our principal recommendation, which was eventually adopted. And a number of other things in, in, uh, that, uh, that have been adopted and that had been good, good policies. Again, I look back 
astonishingly on that commission as uh, <laughs> mostly successful uh, and bipartisan, uh, amazingly. Uh, it was sort of a miracle in, in that respect. I can imagine so, but what was the nature of the pushback of, of those kinds of uh, suggestions? To be honest, for example, let's say tax cuts for families. Yeah. You would think that was actually endorsed by the Republican platform, but <laughs> in practice, <laughs> Republicans hated it. Uh, the Wall Street Journal denounced the idea. The Heritage Foundation opposed it because they wanted, there was something going on called the budget agreement, which it's a long and dismal story, but it meant that you could not cut taxes. Uh, well, this budget agreement was in place, and the Heritage Foundation was behind that. I, even though a couple, of, one Heritage person finally voted against her own organization when the final report came up. Wow! So actually, the, the Republicans were bad on some things, uh, even <laughs> you, though they weren't supposed to be. You don't, and, you don't uh, say <laughs> the Republicans. <laughs> The Republicans, yeah, they uh, and and like I say again, the Wall Street Journal, which favored uh, tax, never saw a tax cut for businesses that they didn't like, but uh, have routinely and still to this day opposed the child tax credit. Uh, why not give tax credits for dogs? Or, you know, they've actually run pieces <laughs> like that. That's to be honest. I think the biggest problem on some of the things like that was the was the uh, we'll call it the conservative right, or at least the uh, the Wall Street Journal right, who were just still can't get good family policy. I'm curious to, to know if you have any um, interesting or uh, maybe the most memorable UN stories. Is there anything? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, uh, yeah, this will go back to my statement about Africans being good people. This was not me, but my colleague, Christopher Check. He was then our vice president, but he went to the 1995 United Nations held the uh, the global conference on the status of women. And it was in Beijing, China. So he went over as we were formal because we were on the list and we got ourselves approved. We were, we were able to send NGO delegates to that meeting and he went over. And Chris is an old Marine officer, artillery officer. And uh, so, uh, and he's every bit a Marine. Uh, so he went over there. Well, anyway, one day he was at a session and hearing some really dreadful stuff because the American official American delegation was head was headed by Hillary Clinton. Anyway, some dreadful stuff. Well, anyway, he came out of a session was standing next to a woman, uh, clearly a woman from Africa, a delegate from one of the African countries, and they were standing there watching. There was a demonstration going on by uh, lesbian advocates, and they were saying, "Stop the persecution of lesbians and uh, free the lesbians." and uh, so and there were a bunch of signs, and they were shouting. And anyway, the woman from Africa, this is a true story, Chris swore this up and down, turned to him and said, oh my, this is terrible. I really am sad to hear about the persecution of the lesbians. But can you tell me, where is this country of lesbia? <laughs> 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 and, well, there is an island. <laughs> it's in Greece. But, but again, I kind of got to this, the modern West or the contemporary West has been really <laughs> kicking around traditional peoples who still have at least inherited a, a, a good common sense understanding of what uh, of what's good for fa- what's good for children and what's good for society. It does seem like you know you you have to have a uh, a PhD to to do the level of nonsense that goes on today. So um. well, it, it certainly helps. Uh, <laughs> actually, I have a PhD and. Uh, uh, I, 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 
been ever since I've been trying to transcend that. Okay. So, <laughs> I'm trying to free myself from its restrictions. Well, I'm happy to edit that part out, you know, for the audience, but all of it again. Yeah. So I'm curious. Alan, how do you see the, I mean, at this point, I I believe the book was published. I'm not sure when the manifesto was written, but the book, The Natural Family, was was published in 2007. When when was the the manifesto? The manifesto itself came out about a year before. A year before. Okay, so 2006. I'm curious to hear... Your thoughts on as, as we kind of move forward, the it, it doesn't seem like the 2020, it seems like it's going to be the 2020s, you know, there's, we're never going to get away from maybe the insanity that's already started. So in, in terms of your mission and the goals that you have and that uh, your think tank and your writings and everything else, can we put the toothpaste back in this tube? Well, I actually got two answers. Let's go at the international level. I've already... Uh, kind of blind out that there is now at the United Nations uh, uh, a true pro-family, a pro-life lobby. It wasn't there 25 years ago uh, when the UN started moving into family policy, but it's been built and it's been created under. Uh, uh, well, the the agenda here was was never perfectly done under the Trump administration. At least to some degree, the United States got back on the on the right side of things. Not always, but sometimes. Uh, it wasn't too bad under the George Bush administration, George Bush too. He did a pretty good job. And his people at the UN, the United States was on generally on the side of the good guys at the UN. Now, it was not true under uh, Bill Clinton. It was not true under Barack Obama. And it's not going to be true under uh, uh, President Joe Biden. But these things go back and forth. More broadly, though, there are there are, is a pro-family lobby. There are nations willing to stand up and promote and defend the natural family uh, at the United Nations. Again, it's organized. And, and the virtue, one of the virtues of the UN, the way it's set up, is actually a relatively small number of countries. You know, you got 180-some member countries, but about 10 or 15, if they're really strongly opposed to something, they can block it at the General Assembly level. It's actually kind of a nice little deal. Those countries are there. And again, there's sometimes you'll find surprising, uh, again, nations. The, the Islamic countries have been, when they're given some support and can find some leadership, do a pretty good job. Many of the former communist countries have done a good job. Much to the shock of the left, uh, Russia, freed from communism, turned up to uh, be a, a pro-life, pro-family country. That's one of the reasons that the American left doesn't like the Russians anymore. So that's going on. At the, at the United States level, I'm actually going to plug another book, which I... Yeah, I please, please. A couple of years ago, it's gotten almost no attention. I really didn't think it would because its, it's thesis is far too, far too controversial to, to, to gain any, to any traction. But the book is called Family Cycles, the Strength, Decline, and Renewal in American Domestic Life, 1630 to 2000. And briefly, I taught a course on this, well, actually... First Catholic University of America, then at Hillsdale College. And I, I was struck by how in America's past, there have been cycles of, of, of times when the natural family, the model, has strengthened and in fact become quite strong. The United States, in some ways, the most family-centric nation on earth. Uh, this was true in the, in the middle part of the uh, 17th century, middle part of the 18th century, middle part of the 19th century, and also in the middle part of the 20th century. But each period was followed by a period of decline and crisis. And so I try to look at these cycles, and I, I think they're real, and understand what, what, uh, what causes this, this, this up and down motion. Things get better, things get worse, 
Well, there again, uh, for a Christian, it's not hard to, uh, if you hold to the concept of original sin, uh, we can get it right for a while, but then we mess it up. And that's what the Old Testament is about. I mean, uh, the Hebrew people, you get it right for a while, <laughs> pay attention to their prophets and start behaving, uh, behaving well. <laughs> I've, I've seen then, that. I've seen that book, The Judges. I, I, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you know, <laughs> you know, they just they, blow it. They, they screw it up again, and they're uh, pretty. And then, and, and you got to go through the whole thing. All kinds of terrible, horrible things happen. And then a new group of prophets come around and get them straightened out again. So I think the United States is now at the end of a fifty-year cycle of pretty disastrous things happening from 1970 to 2020. If my thesis has any merit going forward, it's that hey, we're at the bottom right now. 2020 is at the bottom of a of a predictable cycle, but it also means things are going to get better. <laughs> How or why I don't know because each time <laughs> it's come from a different source and a different place. Sure, and it may already be happening right now. I hope it is. I think it is. Little things are happening off the radar, small things. Some communities are rebuilding. Some ideas are being circulated and forming. But my hope, uh, I, I can't guarantee it, but this has happened before. My hope is that it's going to get better, in fact, quite a bit better. The system of sexually, of the, of the sexual revolution and the system it's created is not sustainable. Uh, and it, it doesn't satisfy human longings. We think it does when we're chasing pleasure and uh, irresponsibility and do whatever we want, but it doesn't bring satisfaction. It doesn't bring human thriving. So I think, uh, actually, I'm oddly enough kind of optimistic right now. Um, <laughs> so do you think that your thesis is controversial in its optimism? Well, it's controversial one. Uh, <laughs> you can't make these sweeping generalizations about cycles. Uh <laughs> Uh, that's and it's uh, I, I I appreciate that. With that said, I'm uh, one of my a couple of my mentors, uh, one of whom I knew personally, one of whom just by uh, reputation he died before I could have had a chance to meet him. Carl Zimmerman, a uh, great book, Family and Civilization, and then Robert Nisbet, uh, American sociologist, who actually I did get to know fairly well and uh, learned a lot from. Also believed in that there are cycles to human history. And, and that these things are uh, things could come and go. So I've I've pulled uh, some ideas from them. So anyway, why is it con also controversial? Yeah, I mean, somehow is it well the other side's one. Get over it, adjust, uh, get with the program. Uh, no, no, you don't have to do that. Right, don't do that. And in fact, uh, the best uh, the best attributes of America's past is when people don't do that. And in fact kind of shake it off and understand what it takes to rebuild a family-centered society and then proceed to do so. I recently heard a criticism of conservatism as sort of lacking an eschatology and, and not, not uh, eschatology in the sense of just like, how, how, what's the future look like? Not, not merely Christ returns and, and eternity continues. I'm curious. Do you, do you, ha do you ascribe to anything? You're, you're rather optimistic currently, but is, is it just, for you, do you just see this as, you know, in terms of playing the cycle strategically, or how do you see the future? Eschatology means there is an end point where, right. where everything does change. And I believe in that. I am a Christian. I believe in that. There, right. It's coming. But, you know, we don't know when. Right. Uh, what I do think, if there is, if there's something to the cycle, again, I think it's so 
even a secular version of the uh, of the story of, of of the Hebrew people. Now, not every nation has you can you know, will not find these cycles in every nation. In fact, in a lot most you don't. But there is something you I guess you say if there's an eschatology or something special going on here is that the United States. And I don't want to make too much of this because I don't want to become. Uh, this is not a nationalist point, but that the American story does resemble the Hebrew story, and I'm not quite sure how that's going to play out. But again, the Hebrews got it right, got it wrong, got it right, got it wrong, got it right, got it wrong. <laughs> it's mostly that's the main theme of the Old Testament. I think. I think something similar is going on in this country, and whether that m- means anything, whether that is a mark of some distinctive quality of the American experience, I think it is. Right. Uh, but I don't want to push it too far because uh, what I what I think we see here is that our, our when we get it right, maybe there that's a little bit. Uh, some extra luster to it, but also when we get it wrong, there's some maybe some extra degradation to it as well. So, okay. uh, yeah, leave it at that, I guess. Fair enough. Thank you so much. We're coming up right on time here. Mr. Carlson, where can I send folks if they want to get more of your books, know more about uh, what's going on with you? Well, in terms of my books, uh, I've, got a, I've got a website, uh, alancarlson.com. Alan C. Carlson.com, Alan, A-L-L-A-N, C, middle initial Carlson, no dots in there, .com, and more about me and the books and a little bit of my biography and so on is in there. Uh, Profam.org is where the the IOF Howard Center work is uh, is profiled. And just if you want to see how much anger the World Congress of Family has stirred up, just do World Congress of Families. Uh, just check, yeah, do a Google search on that, and you will find that we have a huge number of enemies. Uh, and some of the most powerful folks on earth uh, uh, are our enemies, but we also have our friends. So I can, uh, I can imagine you're not well-liked. Uh, we, <laughs> this is not an exaggeration, but some of the uh, powerful figures behind the global Reset, as some have called it, um, have, have labeled the World Congress of Families as enemy, as enemy number one. George Soros's organization, for example, the New Democracy Project, has said the World Congress of Families is public enemy number one on, on social questions. So that's a powerful enemy. He's got a lot of money. <laughs> he does. We, and he we does. don't. Uh, so send money. <laughs> yes, send money. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much again for offering us your time. Appreciate it. Go get those books today and go check out all that he's up to and and send some money. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Carlson. 